0: Tazriya and Mitzora, both deal very, very much with the, with the laws of what we refer to, although in, inaccurately, as leprosy. Laws of leprosy. Um, it's not actually leprosy, it's some other kind of condition, some other kind of an ailment. Let's call it Saras. and is full of the laws of Saras. What's interesting and unique is that although this is a physical condition and a malady, a physical ailment, the Torah prescribes an entire ritual and procedure about something that's clearly a physical illness. It even has you go to the Kohen, rather than going to the doctor. Now, although maybe in those days, Kohanim and doctors were, Kohanim practiced medicine. But nevertheless, if, and when the Mashiach is rebuilt, uh, when the, the make is rebuilt and, and Saras ever comes up, we're still going to have to go through this particular ritual of going to the koin. And the Torah prescribes a whole regimen as to what to do. There is an aspect of quarantine to it. But there's also much more than quarantine. You quarantine the person, the coin has to make certain pronouncements on it. And of course a whole host of laws of Tuma and Tara kick in as well as the laws of of Kotchim, of Korbonos, kapora, different kinds of Korbonos that are brought. So the laws of Tsaras are very much part of the laws of Tuma Tara and Kotchim. Korbonos. And of course you go to the Kohen. What lessons does this teach us so Chazal as is well known and Rashi brings it down and we have it in many places connects the laws of Tsaras to the sin of Loshan Hara because as we've said Tsaras is a rather unique ailment that the Torah highlights it and devotes so much so much um, um, information and so much ritual to the laws of Tzaras, clearly it straddles both the physical and the spiritual dimensions. It's not just a physical ailment, it's somehow connected to a spiritual um, illness. Because after all, the Torah prescribes a cure that has certain elements of physical quarantine and the like, but the fact that the kohen and have to go to the Beis Hamikdash and you have to bring Corbonus, and you have to go through the laws of Tum and Tara, and so there's obviously a spiritual component to it. As a result, Chazal saw in the laws of Tsaras that there is a spiritual root to it. And that root they saw in the sin of Loshan Hara. There are a number of, uh, of proofs to that. We find that the malady of Tsaras always seems to follow uh, an episode of Lush and Har. What? Yeah. By Miriam. Why what? Why did you have to quarantine? I don't know. I, I'm not going to go through the exact details of each no, part of the ritual. See, it's a spiritual something. The next guy wouldn't get it from him. So what? Why did you quarantine? I never said that it's only spiritual. It may be highly contagious physically as well. And we have instances of plagues that once they break out because of spiritual sins become physically uh, contagious as well. As we've seen that kind of a principle as well. And therefore for that reason I should say as, a, as an aside the people that say that, that AIDS cannot possibly be from a spiritual cause because we see that innocent people suffer are missing the point. Because the truth of the matter is that, that spiritual roots once they cause physical illnesses if they're not properly quarantined and, and, and stamped out do spread and then it becomes contagious and innocent will suffer so that does happen in fact we're going to speak a little bit about that if we have time but the point is that that the rituals prescribed for, for Tsaras clearly have a large Spiritual component and dimension to it, and Chazal see it with Loshen Har. Why is Tsaras and Lush and Hara connected? That we're not going to be able to go into right now. But the Sefer Achiloch draws a very important philosophical lesson from this from this uh, parsha, and and it's it's an area which which is really impossible to do with justice, but it's very timely. Issue as well, although it's a philosophical one, and that is what is Hashgucha and Hashgucha prophets? These, of course, are issues today in terms of the suffering and and divine providence. It relates to the issue of divine providence. Now, how is that? It's not readily apparent. Let's see from what the Sefer Chenuch says. So, Mitzvah's Inyin Tumus Mitzvah, this is the second piece on the page. The mitzvah involved is the mitzvah of properly executing the laws of the Saras, the rituals of tsaras as the Torah prescribes. The Tame Odom Mitsaira, to go through the ritual of making the Tumil laws of a mitzvah Kloymar, shemitzvi or leinu, the mitzvah that we have the mitzvah entails a person that shows signs of Tsaras to come to the Kohen to inquire regarding his Tsaras and the Kohen's diagnosis is not just a physical diagnosis but it makes him tome or Tor as a result, you then follow the procedures as, as um, mandated by the Torah. kohen as the Kohen commands, says the Chinuch, don't take the illness of Tzaras as merely a haphazard, accidental uh, in, uh, illness that came up upon you by chance think about it contemplate that it was the result of sin that this illness came about now he goes into the lessons of this mitzvah to, to firmly establish in our in our minds, in our souls, that the divine providence of God is is on each and every single person, singular and unique to that person. And God's eyes are open to all of our ways, The eyes of God are on the pathways of each man, all of the steps God
1: sees.
0: And therefore, the Torah commands us in this particular illness, this particular instance, to think about this and to realize that there's a spiritual root to this particular sin. Uqva'am v'zuchanu ki Lashon hara The Gemara in Erechon says that the sin of Tsaras is Lashon hara. <speaking in Hebrew> now, at this point we could really go off on trying to see what the connection is between Lashon hara and Tsaras. And also the severity of the sin of Lashon hara itself That's what we used to do in the past in this particular parasha. But now we're going to take a more general approach. The whole idea that illness doesn't come about accidentally, but it comes about through an act of divine decree. And it's not a um, haphazard by chance, but rather it's through divine providence. Not to take this as an accidental thing we've seen this in the Rambam When we talked about fast days we talked about Tzarus that when Jews have Tzarus there is a mitzvah in the Torah not to take it as a haphazard chance occurrence but rather it's a message it's a divine decree and it's a message and we have to learn what that message is and the first lesson of the message is what we just said before we even understand what the sin is the fact that God is speaking to us and that we take it as divine providence is already part of the cure it's already part of the mitzvah itself that we're taking it as something said to us by God rather than something that's haphazard this of course opens up the whole area of what is because of divine decree what comes as a result of free will to what degree does nature or chance or probability play a role and that's what we're going to try to discuss a little bit to a certain extent what is the interrelationship between Hashgacha, Pratis, divine providence and chance occurrences does one say that gravity is only an illusion in other words when you throw up a stone and it falls down is God actively willing the stone to fall down but because he wills it over and over again we perceive it as gravity but there's no such thing as gravity it's merely the divine command for the stone to fall time and time again and therefore Newton's laws of motion aren't real It's all illusory. In other words, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west because the earth rotates on its axis, which we know that the earth rotates on its axis. But is that rotation itself something that's a mechanism that's a law of nature and therefore it constantly rotates because of Newton's law of motion, which is that an object in motion will continue in motion until acted upon by another force and this is a law of nature or is it a constant stream of divine will that actively decrees the motion that should constantly go and go and go and there's a divine decree of constant motion this is a philosophical question but of course it has great pertinence to us because if there is such a thing as nature that operates although God sets it into motion and God is the one that decrees laws of nature but then when you violate the law of nature and you pay the penalty the consequences of its violation is it because God is actively punishing you or is it merely a violation of something which God had set into motion beforehand and there are many many versions of how to view this particular issue. was in the area of Hashkocha, there are many, many opinions, and what's interesting about it, what's very strange about it, is how fundamental is this belief, and how unknown, and how ignorant people really are as to what we're obligated to believe. Why do I say it's fundamental? Because not only is it obviously a uh, part of Jewish faith but one could possibly say that this is the most important mitzvah in the entire Torah why do I say that? the very first command of the Torah the very first command I should say that God introduces himself to the world with by Maimon Sinai, when the period of Sefir HaSaomer right now where it's a countdown to revelation at Sinai. So the very first act of revelation that was revealed to, to the world was where God introduces himself with the first of the Ten Commandments, Anochi Hashem Alokecho Eretz Mitzrayim. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt most people are familiar with this obviously because it's the first of the Ten Commandments the question that many of the Rishonim deal with is why is it that God introduces himself in this fashion uh, if you want to see it inside it's on the bottom of page 175 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Why does God introduce himself to the world with that expression? One would think that Hashem should say, I am Lord God, master of the universe, creator of everything. In fact, another way maybe of introducing it is to say, Hashem Echad. God is one, unique and singular, unlike anything else. In other words, the nature of God's essence is different and unique and singular and unknowable. And maybe God should introduce himself by saying that. I am God, unlike anything that you could possibly even imagine. I am God, and I'm the only real existence. All of you are only figments of my imagination." You don't really exist. At least not to the same level of existence that God exists. I am God, the true existence. That's God. That's the way you describe God. God is the only true existence. Or alternatively, I am God, I created it all. I am the God of Beresh's. Anochi Hashem I made Beresh's. In fact, I created time. Time itself is something of a, of a creation of God I'm the God of Voracious. I'm the God of Shemaim Bo'aretz I created heaven and earth Master of the world Master of the universe I made it all instead it seems to demote God by saying I am the Lord God you know, I took you out of Egypt, I made those plagues and I brought you out, and I split the sea I took you out of the house of bondage why limit God, or God's introduction to the world with that with that part of the um, with, with a mere episode in nature in, in history rather so there's a number of different answers given to this particular question the the Orchus Chaim Rosh. the Rosh writes the following very interesting um, elucidation of this and he says Jews are obligated to believe in Hashgach Jews are obligated to believe that there is divine providence. now we know that that's say one of the tenets of Jewish faith one of the tenets of Jewish faith is not merely to believe in God's existence but to believe in God's providence unlike those that maybe believe that God exists and creates the world but doesn't intervene and doesn't um, interject himself in the historical process Jews believe in divine providence says the Rosh it's more than just one of the fundamentals of faith to believe to believe in divine providence. It is the essence of belief in God. To believe in God and not to believe in providence is atheism. That's what the Russians for a Jew. For a Jew to believe in God and not to believe in divine providence is the equivalent of not believing in God Himself. And therefore, One cannot say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in divine intervention in history. If you say that, you're not merely denying providence and not merely denying divine intervention, you're denying God's very existence as a Jew. Which means the following. The Jewish concept of God is a God of providence. It's not just a God of creation it's not just for example let's take another example of this the god of Aristotle he believes in God and he was a monotheist as well the god of Aristotle is a monotheistic god but it's not a god that intervenes in nature, it's a force it's the supreme force that originated all motion and all movement after all, Newton's law is that an object in motion will remain in motion forever unless acted upon but an object at rest will remain at rest forever until acted upon what was the first actor who produced the first motion where did the first motion come from the prime mover and that prime mover is God what is that what is this God it's a force that caused movement it's a force that was the prime mover It's almost like the Star Wars concept of God. The force be with you. What is this force? Some sort of a mysterious force that suffuses all of nature. And it's a supernatural, suffused into nature force. Does it think? Does it make decisions? Does it intervene? Is it a knowing, intelligent being God? does it exist as a being or only as a force if you believe in that you're clearly not believing in the Jewish concept of God if a person says yeah I believe there's something out there some force that suffuses nature if you say that and you say that's what God means to me and therefore I believe in God as far as Judaism is concerned you don't believe in God that's not the God of Judaism it's some other concept of God It's not the God of Judaism. Says the Orchus Chaim L'Rosh that the God of Judaism that you must believe in is a God of divine providence. If you don't have the belief in the God of providence, then you don't have Jewish belief in God itself. Therefore, says the Rosh, the last part of the Pesach is critical. God introduces himself not as the God of creation, or as the philosophical God of Aristotle, or as the singularly unique being, unlike anything else, which is all true. But he introduces himself as, I am the God of history. I am the God of divine providence, who took you out of Egypt, intervened in history, interfered in world affairs, and did things in the world, supernaturally. Anochi Hashem al Asher Hotei Me'eretz Says the Rosh, Nishaloy Hamid, if you don't believe in the second part of the verse, you're denying the first part of the verse. It's not the mere denial of the second part of the verse, it's the equivalent of denying the first part of the verse as well. The whole verse comes as a package deal. It's a package deal, you take the whole verse or you take none of it it's an all or nothing proposition it's all or nothing it's a package deal you either take the whole verse or you take none of the verse and therefore a Jew that denies the second half of the verse and therefore if you have a book called the Eitz Chaim known as the conservative Chumash which denies the exodus it's atheism It's not a book that accepts God. You could burn the book. Halachically, at least. Religiously. There's nothing there. There's no sanctity to it. It's a book of atheism. Again, I'm not going to go into what it actually says. Does it actually deny God's providence? Maybe it doesn't. But certainly the idea of the acceptance of the Exodus is the acceptance of divine providence. A Jew that doesn't accept providence is an atheist. You can't call yourself a believer in God. Interesting, a Goy is different. If a guy says, well, I don't know if there's divine providence, but I do believe in God, he's called a believer in God. A Goy who believes in God, but is uncertain about providence, is not considered to be an atheist. But a Jew that denies providence, and says he believes in God, is an atheist. Says the and the Rosh, that's why the Pussik is introduced the way it is because it's telling you to what degree and to what extent we're obligated to believe in God. Onno hi to the extent of our certainty of American shrine. And if you don't believe our certainty of American Gambo Gambono hi yashmalokakho ya. Mishloim va shur certainty of American shrine. Gambono hi yashmalokakho lo loim. If you don't believe in the second part, you're not believing in the first part. Why am I bringing all this down? Because it comes out that the belief in the Hashgach is not only a fundamental, perhaps it's the fundamental aspect of Jewish belief. Because the very first verse, the very first introduction of God to the world, and the very first mitzvah, and the very first of the Ten Commandments, the mitzvah of the first of the Ten Commandments is belief in God, which entails within it belief in Hashgach yet nobody really knows what Hashgach is it's, it's very peculiar that although it's so fundamental it's Jewish faith that it is the fundamental but, so what does it mean? what does it mean that we believe in divine providence? is every single thing divine providence? if I choose to eat something is that divine providence or is that my free choice? is there such a thing as nature when I throw a stone up is gravity a force in nature? Or is it always the will, even if you're going to say it's the original will of God, but is it a constant will of God, like we said earlier? To what degree do we go with Hashgacha? So we have the principle of Hashgacha Prophets. And even that's not totally understood. As we'll see, the word Hashgacha Prophets doesn't really mean that God has particular divine providence on each and every single thing but Hashgoch Hapotis means that each and every single person has his own Hashgoch. Well, let's see. So now comes the Sefer Achinuch and says that the mitzvah of Mitzorah is to drive home the point of this belief, this faith. We said that there's an aspect of Hashgoch, of, of the mitzvah that deals with the sin of Lashon hara which we've spoken about in the past but now we're going to deal with the underlying fundamental behind it which is the whole concept that God doesn't allow haphazardly for things to occur, but God wills things to occur and intervenes and interjects himself in world affairs and intervenes in in, in history and therefore the fact that the Torah gives us an entire regimen regarding tzaraz that is primarily not medical but primarily ritualistic in terms of the laws of tumah and tara and korbanos and Kotsham and Kapora and the Kohen and the of English, teaches us that even something that's physical like Taras has a spiritual root and that's rooted in the fundamental of hashgachah of Divine Providence and this mitzvah should drive home the essential core Jewish belief in HaProtest and Divine Providence. Let's go weiter So therefore, the derech Mikra, we're in the line right below where there's a parenthesis The For that reason we go to the coin. Why? Because now that we've said that there's a spiritual component and a spiritual root to this particular illness, so the person that you go to is not really the doctor in this case. It's the kohen. Because the kohen is the representation of atonement. After all, the root of the malady is Sin then you go to the atoner of sin rather than to the physician of the body. You go to the one that deals with spiritual um, atonement. That's the coin Kohen. The coin's mission and the coin's job is to be the one, the intermediary who's responsible for bringing about kapora for sin. And additionally when a person with tzaras goes to a kohen and he understands that the coin is the atoner of sin he starts to think that what I'm doing was obviously a result of sin maybe he'll start doing tshuva the mere fact that he's mandated and that he's commanded to go to the coin itself will inspire him to think of tshuva furthermore the quarantine that you were asking about before, Harry. The Yusker Ktsas Yomim. That quarantine, thank you, when you're in isolation, and when you're in, um, what do they call it, in prison? Solitary. Solitary confinement. When you're in solitary confinement, uh, what could you do? Not very much. All you can do is think. You meditate, you think. So, therefore, the seven days of isolation, of quarantine that the mitzvah goes through, those seven days are times for self introspection, reflection, meditation, to contemplate what it is that caused what the sins were. And therefore, He'll have seven days where he could with patience and with time think over very carefully what his deeds were. He'll be able to search his deeds. At times the Torah prescribes a second week of quarantine. Shema shuva shleim and again, the first week maybe wasn't enough. He needs another week to think it over. An example would be, the guy says, "Oh, you know what, I'm a dishonest person. I did this wrong and that wrong. I really, people. I should return some of the money. Go back now a second a week. Think about the rest of the money that you got to return. Not just half of your theft, but the other half as well giving you a second opportunity to contemplate and to think over and maybe you'll complete your tshuva and then you'll become ritually purified. But again, this is part of what Saras says, think over. But the whole idea behind this is the concept of Hashgokham. That God is intervening and interfering into your physical state of being, in order to get you to think, it it then demonstrates hashgacha, divine providence. I'll call Darke adam echos to each individual. Okay, that is the basis for this mitzvah. Hashgacha, belief in hashgacha, as we said from Rosh it is the fundamental. The person uh, says when something happens uh, they say it's for a is that problem? yeah, that's what they mean by that that's correct but now the question becomes what is this belief in hashgacha all about now this is because it's probably on the one hand, as I said, it's the most important aspect of faith, the most important and according to the rush, the very first mitzvah very first of the Ten Commandments but as important a mitzvah as it is that's how unknown the different aspects and that's how much confusion there is in this mitzvah and not only is it a mitzvah that most people aren't fully aware of what they're obligated to believe but to do this mitzvah justice would require literally an infinite amount of time The more we discuss it, the more questions we'll have. And the more answers we have, the more other questions we have. And it's almost infinite in terms of how much has to be discussed. So therefore, I have to say that before we start, because don't expect to have the full answer to everything you'll understand hashgacha. We're only going to understand little pieces. Little pieces. It's like yesterday when we were going through the study of, of you know it's like little pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and even after you have all the pieces when you start putting it together it becomes you start seeing the whole, the whole image you can have all the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle the kunst is to do it is to put it together because when you have all those pieces in front of you you see absolutely nothing because you have the whole puzzle here you have nothing it's only after you put it together that it becomes beautiful but the kunst is how to put it together so we don't even have all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle certainly even when we get some of them we have to still put it together and as you put it together until you see the whole picture you're going to have very little of it so let's discuss just some of the things that he's going to enlighten us with because it's a little bit of a chidosh actually I have to say that not everybody necessarily agrees with it although in the time of the Rishon it was certainly the mainstream view of Hashguch the Ramban holds like this as well as well as other Rishayin hold the way he's going to explain now but certainly the Mookabalim and later authorities had a slightly different view of Hashguch as what he's going to now present so let's see what he says we're about six lines from the bottom of the second column seven seven lines <coughs> bottom of the second column because there are many many opinions and philosophical approaches to understanding the interaction between divine providence and the creation there are many psukim in the Torah as well as many mitzvah, such as the one which we just described the mitzvah of tzaraz, that teach us ...different aspects and lessons... ...about Hashgochah... ...to teach us about this idea... ...because it is a great foundation... ...and as we said earlier... ...it's probably the fundamental mitzvah of all... ...so there's going to be many mitzvahs and psukim... ...that indicate little bits and pieces... ...like a jigsaw puzzle aspects of this mitzvah... ...but again... Even then you'll get a lot of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle But you may not necessarily fully comprehend it If you can't put it together So he says like this There are those opinions And I dare say that most of you That grew up in a Heimish background This is the approach that you were probably taught I don't know how many of you were brought up in a Haimisha background I know certainly Harry was And he will recognize this as being the way he was brought up. (laughs) That God has direct providence on each individual and on each creature. Whether each human or each animal. Therefore, if there's a spider web in the corner and a fly flies into it and the spider pounces on it and drains it of all of its life juices that fly was meant to go into that spider web and that fly was meant to die and that spider was given that fly to eat and therefore when a cat catches a mouse or a rat and that rat dies, that rat was meant to die divine providence and when a rat falls into your trap into a glue trap this opinion basically says that there's nothing that happens in, in nature that isn't willed by God because why should it be that this fly randomly suffers and another fly doesn't. Let me give you an example of a story that made me think a lot about this. It was many years ago in in, in Lakewood. I was going back about 15 years or so. And one day, I'm coming out of my uh, apartment. I go downstairs, and in the driveway in the area, there's this little kitten, a very cute little kitten who decides to thrust his head into a gefilte fish jar. It was an empty jar, but I guess it might have still smelled of gefilte fish. So he sticks his head into the gefilte fish jar. You can't get it out. Not if you're a kitten. If you're a human, you could maybe maneuver it off of your head. Well, here you have this little kitten with its head stuck deep, thrust into the gefilte fish jar. It's able to breathe because the air is getting into it, but it's too tightly wedged for him to dislodge it. He can't shake it off and he can't get it off with his little paws. So, kind person that I am, animal rights activist that I am,
1: sure. <laughs> I
0: stepped on the jar. Now, I want to do, help the little kitten extract its head from the jar. Kittens being what they are, sees me coming, feels threatened. Frisky little kitten that he is, he runs away. Successfully so. Can't get there. Every time I see him I try getting near him, doesn't let. Him. He runs away. Try explaining to a kitten, I'm doing it for your own good, but the kitten just doesn't listen. Anyhow, so I say, Nebuchad poor kitten. What can I do. I come back a day or two later, and sure enough. I see the kitten still there or in a nearby area. At this point, the kitten's pretty weak. You can imagine what agony it's been going through, suffering as it was for two days of just being able to breathe. I mean, just the claustrophobia would drive you crazy if you were human. If you are a kitten in the stomach, it's not claustrophobic, but certainly it's hungry and thirsty. So now in its weakened condition, I figure I'm going to go over to it and get it out. Nothing doing. As soon as it sees me, it runs away. It doesn't let me approach it. No, never. What can I do? A couple days later, I come back and I see it like laying there like it's dead. It's arms or whatever you call it. The leg is outstretched, it's eyes closed. But you can still see it's a little bit breathing. So I try going, approaching it. You wouldn't believe the power that this kitten had. It jumps and it runs and it's like three quarters dead. It's already a few days. So I got some sort of an animal, something, a number... And I call them up and say, listen, I don't know if you guys do anything about this, but there's this kitten with its head stuck in the jar. It's already been like this for a few days. It's just like dying away. I can't do anything about it that you want to do. It? Sure enough, they come out with this ambulance. And there's like these four people with nets. And this kitten, three quarters dead that it is, puts up a fight. That you need four people to corner it. And they finally get the net over it. And even then it's like jumping and thrashing away with its last ounce of strength, finally able to extract the, the jar off of its head. But you needed like four people to catch it. And I think to myself, what about this kitten suffering? For days, for days on end, this kitten was suffering. Is there a rhyme or reason for this kitten to suffer? Now, of course, there's a very interesting answer one could give, which is yes. The point was for me to see it and to then discuss it in the sheer in the context of Hashgachah. And therefore God willed this kitten in this jar because there's a tremendous moral, ethical, philosophical lesson to be learned and discussed by it. But let's say this kitten was in the wild. And there's probably countless kittens in the wild doing silly things like this and suffering. Is there any rhyme or reason to their suffering? Or is it haphazard? Or is it willed by God? Is it intended? Is there meaning to it? So, he says, there are those that say, and that's probably what you were brought up to believe, that yes, everything is Hashgach, Sashem, Hashem, and God wills every single thing. Obviously, we don't know the reason for it. The reason is inscrutable. But the fact that it's God's will, as opposed to haphazardness, Hashgach. And then they go even further. The eight men kados yachshavu kiyash goches hashem are at the top of the third column. I'll call in your ne'ila. The hashgoches hashem extends not just to animals but everything. Bein baleichaim ochol shadvar, whether alive or otherwise. Kolaymar shelo yisnei adovrach. Caught by the mazerach the cheftz baruchu That nothing moves. There's no motion that exists without God decreeing that motion. God decrees every motion. Even the fall of a tree, or the fall of a leaf of a tree, the way it falls and comes down and turns over and is also God's decree. The fact that the acorn falls the way it falls and a new tree sprouts, the fact that a tree falls down at the angle of its fall, even the leaves that they fall, is not just a result of the wind and forces of nature, but God actively wills it. That is the concept of Hashgacha that many people understand. And probably, Harry, that's the way you were brought up. You're not supposed to question. But I did not talk about the question. That's probably the way yeah, you were brought up. That that's Poshit hashgach. is not only that it, we're not talking about what it answers. We're talking about what it is that you were taught to believe. Mm-hmm. This is dvor pshutit. Yeah. Most haimish people are brought up that this is alvei. This yeah. is this is the how it answers. And what it answers. Good. That's, that's already you mean, that's that you're, you're that's supposed. not supposed to ask. If you ask, you're a koifer. Yeah. yeah. But the fundamental basis of Hashgokha protes is this. This is what Hashgokha protes means. In other words, the definition of Hashgokha protes means the Hashgokha on every prat. Divine providence for every particular. Hashgokha protes, which is divine providence protis. Protes meaning on each prat, on each incident, on each event, on each episode, on each thing. Hashgokh on every single thing. Everything. Hajgokah promise. This is the way most people are brought up to believe. And therefore, there's no movement unless it's with divine decree. Even a leaf the way it falls. And therefore, if it falls, God decrees it to fall. Via Shizakhar o Yuktam Zman philosophy Rega. The fact that it falls at the time that it falls not a moment, soon, not a moment later, is God's will that it should fall not only the way it falls and where it falls, but even when it falls. feel Reka, each moment, its location, its way of fall, its angle, its time. The where, the why's, the when's, it's all from God. Says the Chinuch, I'm telling you this is the mainstream approach in the Rishonim, although you are not brought up like this. V'zeh das rochuk har Says this is very far fetched. Because It doesn't really, really make sense, and he doesn't accept it. He says this he is. Doesn't he doesn't accept it. He doesn't accept it. The Yesh Roy's Of course, there is an opposing approach, which is a very wicked one. Whether man or beast. There is no divine providence. This is the view of what he calls the kaifu-man. I said earlier from the If you, if you don't believe in Hashgacha, you don't believe in God. You're a kaifer. A person that denies divine providence, denies the existence of God, of the Jewish God, of the God of Judaism. And again, because I don't want to go into the philosophy behind it, but this is what Aristotle held. The reason is because he held that God is the singular, unique and simple entity, being, which has all knowledge that, that is already there in Him and will never gain new knowledge. And therefore, to know what's happening in this world is being fed a constant stream of new information. And God has nothing to do with that. There's no changes in God. God is the way he always was this world means there's new knowledge streaming into God's uh, state of consciousness God has no new consciousness no new information no new knowledge and therefore he's divorced from this world, he set everything into motion but he doesn't intervene, he doesn't interfere he doesn't even know he denied this level not only of of omnipotence and of providence, but of omniscience as well. So three different things: there's omniscience, God's knowledge; there's omnipotence, God's ability; and there's providence, God's intervention. He denied omniscience, omnipotence, and providence. What then is the correct opinion? Says, says the Chinuch. You know, we believers in the true faith of mashamati, nosim hashgochosa baruchu, we believe that there is hashgochal, kolmine balichayim Regarding each species, there is a general hashgochal. General hashgochal per species. Not particular cats, but cats in general. Not particular flies or particular spiders, but spiders and flies in general. I'll explain to you the logic of this shortly. <clears> That's called every kind of, of species that exists and God wills the existence and the continued maintenance and sustainance of that particular species is kind loyal. that species will forever exist. Lo yichlo God wills that that species should survive and not become extinct. So there's ashgocha on the species that it should remain if God wills it such and that it shouldn't become extinct. <laughs> when we use the word ashgocha, we in effect mean that it's going to exist. Ashgocha in life is, is interchangeable. When we say that someone has ashgocha, it means God wills his life that's regarding all other species other than man there's (laughs) Hashgachah close general providence general (laughs) regarding man there we believe (laughs) that the Hashgachah of God extends to each person of the species in other words, each human is like a species unto himself and therefore there is divine providence that extends to each individual unit of the species. In the case of the animal kingdom, God's providence is general to the species, but not to the units of the species. When it comes to mankind, God's providence extends to each and every single unit of the species, as it says what madema saying. Based on this, let's retranslate the word "hajgoha providence it's not the way we understood it. Hashgacha protus means in contrast to Hashgacha klolis. Hashgacha klolis means general providence on a species. Hashgacha protus means specific providence to each unit of the species. Protus therefore refers to each unit or to each individual. There's individual providence per individual. Not per event, or per episode, or per thing. Hashgacha protest doesn't mean that God has hashgacha on each leaf, and on each spider and each fly. Spiders in general, flies in general. Hashgacha protest means that in humankind, Hashem has hashgacha on each individual human being. Now, let's talk about the logic behind this. It's really very simple. What this really means, as we'll see, is that he believes in the concept that God did create mechanisms of nature in the very beginning that operate on their own as mechanisms. Of course, he's the creator of the mechanism, but he created laws of nature. And therefore, it would be correct to say that the earth rotating on its axis is rotating on its axis because it's a law of motion not because he has to constantly will the motion and decree the motion. He doesn't have to decree gravity, namely, that the stone falls and that gravity is an illusion. We said in the beginning, Hashgokha protis could mean that everything that we see is an illusion. There's only an illusion of gravity, but gravity doesn't really exist. There's no such thing as gravity. It just means that every time you throw up a stone, God wills it to fall down, and that constant will over and over and over again is what to us looks like gravity but it's pointless to to believe in gravity because there isn't any gravity it merely looks like gravity because we see it happening constantly since it happens constantly it looks like gravity but there is no gravity because God is constantly actively willing the fall of that stone he's actively willing the fall of the stone According to the Chinuch's understanding, as well as the Rambam and the Ramban, and it's the mainstream approach in the Rishonim, although I'm telling you, not everybody's going to say this, but the mainstream approach is, no, God doesn't have to actively will the stone down. God has to actively will existence for the world, because if He removes His active will for the universe to exist, then the universe will disappear. So God constantly feeds the universe with a divine will. In fact, Kabbalah takes this aspect of it and builds it up, and therefore what we can really do is take both approaches and mesh them together, namely, that on the spiritual level, on the Kabbalistic, mystical level, God has to constantly, actively will the existence of the universe and all of its components and therefore has to constantly maintain an active will that then suffuses and permeates all of nature in order that it should be maintained and that requires an active will because the removal of that active will will cause everything to disappear instantly but in the perceived universe in the physical universe that we see the stone falls because of gravity Not necessarily an active will for the stone to fall or an individual decree on that particular stone to fall. The reason why that stone falls is not that there's an individual particular will for that stone to fall, but as part of the general laws of motion and the general laws of gravity. Once one understands this concept that there's mechanisms that were created by God, and again, I have to emphasize and stress that God certainly is the one that willed these mechanisms into existence. He's the creator of the laws of nature. He's the creator of nature. Therefore, he's the creator of nature, the laws of nature, and all of the dynamics, and all of the mechanisms, and all of the laws of motion and nature, God willed into being. But now they exist. Once one understands that concept that nature does exist, then it makes perfect sense that there should be a distinction between human hashgacha and animal hashgacha. The reason is because animals operate under instinct. An instinct like a law of nature has been placed into the very fabric of that particular entity. And therefore all cats react very similarly. They see a mouse, they jump. They see a person approaching, they're frisky. All cats are the same all flies are more or less the same. All spiders spin the same webs. Therefore, there'd be no reason and logic to differentiate one from the other. Once you've made the nature, all flies are the same, all spiders And the same. Yeah, God still is gonna keep in, in account as to whether the species as a species should be maintained and sustained and exist a certain way, But the particular individual fly and spider and cat and kitten is not relevant to having to make a decree about the cat. Because this cat's no different than any other cat. And this dog is no different than any other dog. They're all the same. They're all working with instinct. God makes general decrees, but he doesn't have to particularly decree on a specific cat or dog, any particular specific thing, unless he has a reason to want this dog to be different. again there's exceptions to all these rules because God can if he chooses to intervene and interfere and there will be occasions that he will interfere and intervene but as a general principle he doesn't have to make the dog bark the dog barks on his own if God chooses to override that he will do so therefore when Daniel was in the lion's then. God intervened and interfered and made lions act against their nature by keeping their mouths closed and making them into pussycats. Because lions usually aren't like that. God wanted that to happen. So God can interfere and does interfere and intervene. That was the point of the plagues of Egypt. Locusts generally descend the way they do, but you know what? God says, I want all the locusts to come here. So he shows the control of nature. But there's not a general principle that each and every individual locust has a hashgacha on that locust or has divine providence willing that locust's flight or that butterfly's flight. It's only when God chooses it. But the logic is, as we said, because if nature exists and all animals are the same, there's really no point to specifically decree on a particular door where Catholics are going to react the same way anyway, you know. Human beings, on the other hand, because of the fact that they have b'khira, they have free will, each human being is a species unto himself. Each human being is a world unto himself. You are what you are because you, and therefore what happens to you, is also important to God. Because that's part of the whole reward and punishment cycle. You are an individual human being. And you make your decisions. And you do your mitzvahs, and you do your avers, and you are worthy or unworthy, or a tzaddik or rosh, combination thereof, very different than any other human being. You're a species unto yourself. And therefore, God has to deal with you on an individual basis. Because you're not an individual cat or an individual dog. You're an individual world unto yourself. You're a species unto yourself. You're different than everybody else. Bishvilin yivro'ilam each human being is different because he has Bukhira God therefore has to deal with this individual on a very particular specific basis that's Hashgokha Pratis Hashgokha on each Prat meaning each unit of the human realm each human being has his own Hashgokha now, although I've told you something which sounds very logical but the devil is in the detail. Because we do interact with the world around us that has randomness to it. So what is our Bukhira? as well as divine decrees about us, as well as nature, how do these three forces interact? And that's where we say all the rest is commentary. Because your individual choices are bukhira and not part of Hashgocha. In fact, one of the most remarkable aspects of creation is exactly that the fact that God relinquished his control think of what that means it means in effect that that something is not in God's domain God doesn't will you to make your decisions now again even in there there's a devil in that detail to what degree does that apply does it mean that every human decision is his own and it's not God's input does it mean that only doing a mitzvah or an haver or your shemaim is in the human domain but other decisions are not such as who you're going to marry such as whether you're going to buy a house the house that you choose is that part of God's providence or province or is that part of your free will so I haven't answered everything in fact, I've only opened up new vistas of questions. That's why I said before, the more answers we give, the more we open up new realms of questions. I'm just saying certain fundamental principles. One of them is that human beings have b'chira. B'chira. Meaning that you have free will, free choice. And the, the, the chazal say, hakol bidei mir chutz mirashmayim. Mirashmayim is your own domain. But now, what does that mean? Does that mean that free will is every area of human endeavor and enterprise is completely free will? From the stocks that you buy, to the clothes that you purchase, to the car that you choose, to the wife that you marry, to the decisions that you make as to where to move and where to live, and and what kind of schools you... I mean... Is that all within the human province that God has nothing to do with and it's all your decision? Or maybe it's limited. Yes, your Shmaim is your own but God does intervene and interfere and cause you to make certain kinds of decisions regarding the stocks that you buy and regard, you know. Is there, how much divine intervention is, is, is violating the Bukhira? And to what degree does Bukhira violate Hashgach? Bukhira is choice let me give you a tougher question let me give you a tougher question I take a gun and I put a bullet into it and I point it at someone's head and I pull the trigger and the bullet leaves the gun it hits the person in the head and kills him. this was my choice did I violate Hashgacha? or is it somehow interact with Hashgacha? it's a choice that I made it's a choice that I made so, it's a big problem now. Because on the one hand, we're saying this Hashgucha protects each human being, living, dying, illnesses, it's from God. But there's Bukhira. And we know that the essence of Bukhira is violation of Hashgucha. Because Bukhira means God doesn't control. How called we the a Chutz? It's not in God's domain. So to what degree? To what degree does Bukhira violate Hashgucha? Or, alternatively, the reverse. If there's Hashgacha, to what degree does Hashgacha override Bukhiram? It's a tension, which we'll never know. We're just pointing it out. The next thing, which is the point that he's making, Hashgacha itself versus laws of nature and randomness. That's also a very difficult area. We've already said that Hashgacha brought this only applies to human beings. It doesn't mean that every event or episode in nature is hashgok. But every human being has his hashgogh and we explained why. Being that every human being is a Baal Bahira, every human being is a Baal Bahira. Therefore, he has to have his own Hajjokh. Because the whole essence of the Torah is reward and punishment. Making free choices Using your free will and making decisions and paying for those decisions. Suffering the consequences of your decisions, good or bad. You made the right choices, the right decisions, you did good deeds, you deserve reward. You made the wrong choices and you did bad things, you deserve the punishment, you suffer the consequences. The Torah is about responsibility for free will. We do things, we pay the price. That's what the Torah is about, reward and punishment. Well, if that's the case, you need your own Hajjokha. That's how we explain. Hashgokah protests mean because that's what the Torah is about. And each person is his own Baal Bukhira. See, so each person is his own world. In let's put together what we just put, said. God has relinquished his control over whatever domain your free will operates upon. Again, we've said before there's a little bit of a tension there also. We're not fully explaining that. There is a tension between free will and God's decree to what degree do you have free will we don't know but whatever it is there is a level of free will that you have as a result of that you're going to be different than somebody else because God doesn't control you and God doesn't control the other person so each person winds up becoming a whole different world deserving of his own reward and punishment in an entirely unique singular way each person is a singular person with his own mitzvahs, his own avers, his own free choices, his own interactions and therefore God has to deal with him separately therefore hashkocha means God deals with each person separately, he deals with each person individually, specifically and separately, that's hashkocha protes. but now we run into another problem and that's the third component of this dilemma of this interaction and that's the randomness of nature or laws of probability. Now let's take an example. Laws of probability say that well, it's not even more, law of nature, let's take law of nature. Laws of probability is, is, is the law of nature. Law of, prob, uh, law of nature. Take a cape, wave it, bull comes charging at it. Every single bull does it. Know, every, let's say 99% of bulls do it. 99% of bulls, you wave a cape at them, they come running after it. I am able to utilize this knowledge. Namely, if I happen to be standing here with this bull there and I start waving a cape over here, what's going to happen is, again, law of nature. Bull horns are sharp. There's about two tons behind it. Creating out of the law of physics how much force. Take that sharp horn. Take soft human flesh, which we know what human flesh is. Wave the cape in front of yourself. Bull comes, charging horn, pierces the, the cape pierces the flesh kills the person right law of physics based on the amount of force and whatever else you have over there right? you could probably calculate exactly to the mathematical detail exactly what happened another law of nature the same thing if I choose not to wave the cape over here but right next to me and I wave the cape next to me bull will charge You will miss me but charge at the cape ha, I'm smarter than the bull I have a sword right behind the cape bull goes straight into the sword bull's dead okay, law of nature I take a hundred people I line them up behind a hundred capes, and I wave all those capes, a hundred people get gored and they all die, what happened? It it was the nature of bulls and motion, that each of them died is it random, is it the law of nature is it divine decree that they died, is it my will so you have an interaction now between laws of nature and randomness or laws of probability. Well, law of probability is, I once saw this actually um, many, many years ago, oh, this goes back, oh boy, long time, 30 years ago. I was in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and there's this little um, hose that's air powered like a vacuum cleaner, and it shoots out little balls. And they've created a mathematical model of based on the laws of probability where that ball is going to fall and land into, so they made slots, and it flies into the slots depending on whatever it is. Laws of probability: this slot's going to have this amount of balls. The slots next to the less. The slots next to that less, and they put, you know, um, little markings there to show you where what laws of probability are. Sure enough, if you watch it, it's incredible. You see that it was random, but based on the laws of probability, the balls were approximately to the mark of every single slot that they said, based on laws of probability. That's the way it goes. In other words, if you're going to put a fly in one of those things, the ball's going to hit and kill the fly. Now if that fly goes down that slot and falls into a vat of Pepsi Cola, and then I pour the Pepsi into this cup, and the fly's there, and I go, "Yeah, is that divine decree, or is that nature and laws of probability acting over there? I don't know. I don't really have the answer. Obviously, as I've said before, because this we, we always have to emphasize, God can intervene and does intervene. And therefore, in that particular case, he may have wanted the fly to land there in order to repulse me or maybe there's poison that's in there and this way I won't drink it. Maybe a loss <laughs> or maybe a lawsuit. Exactly. right. It's good we have Stan over here. He gives us the right advice constantly. So, what is that? Is it possible, though, that it's only the law of nature that caused it to come here? As a result, the illness that will come as a result of the consumption of that particular fly, is that also, is that a divine decree already? Or is that, in this particular case, mere coincidence? So, we're going to run into this problem because there's a tension then between God's providence and the laws of probability and chance how we resolve them all the rest is commentary again, God will intervene and interfere to a degree, to what degree we're not sure, this of course comes to a head when you deal with something like what happened in the World Trade Center the World Trade Center 3,000 people died. Good people, bad people. How much of it is Bechira? That the Arabs... How much of it is Hashgocha? Or lack of it? What I mean by lack of it? Because the very nature of Hashgocha is, at least now that we've developed the Chinooks model of Hashgocha, which allows for the existence of laws of probability and it allows for the existence of nature it's the non-intervention of God that will therefore, in other words when God wants to save you He will interfere, going back to the famous um, story of the guy who has faith in Hashem and there's a flood coming and the boat comes by and says now I have faith in God and go by, and then the second boat comes by and the third boat, and he keeps pushing away, finally the floodwaters are by his by his nose, and he's on the roof, and the helicopter comes and says, grab the ladder, and he says, no, I, I have faith in God, and then the floodwaters go over his head, and, and he dies, and he goes up to heaven, and he says to God, God, I had all that faith in you, how can you let me die? So, and God says, idiot, who do you think sent you the two boats and the helicopter? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. So Hashgacha would be, Sending two boats. Less Hashgach is only one boat. Less Hashgach is no boats. One boat is already Hashgach. Two boats is even more Hashgach. Two boats and a helicopter, that's a lot of Hashgach. But there could be a limit. If you're on the Madrega, you're Khalina bin doysa you accidentally walk off the edge of the Empire State Building, you'll miraculously live. You'll be in the World Trade Center on the 100th floor, and the building collapses, but you'll be just in a bubble. Of, of whatever it is, bricks and the like, that you'll ride down the collapse of the World Trade Center to the bottom and you'll be protected by that bubble of bricks. Hashgacha. But not everybody's worthy of it. So it's the removal of Hashgacha that causes death. Because the removal of Hashgacha means that you're open up to chance events that operate independently. And it's the removal of Hashgacha that allows you to die. So now you take something like the World Trade Center and you're talking about an infinite amount of of factors. The Bechira of those that wanted to kill. Their Bechira, their free will, they wanted to kill. It's the example that I gave you earlier. I take a gun, I put a bullet into it, I take careful aim and I shoot it at someone's head. How much of that person's death is the result of my Bechira? They trained for a year. They went into the airplane. They flew it into the building. That's their Bechira. Yes, there were a hundred steps along the way that God could have stopped them. But chose not to stop them. Removed Hashgach. Now it hits the building. And there is a certain amount of, uh, what do they call it? What's that force called? When it hits something? Immersion. Not momentum. Um, Impact? No, um... uh, When, uh, kinetic energy? Maybe that's, am I right? Boy, you guys, you got to go back to college. (laughs) So, the force of the size of the plane, the weight of the plane, the, obviously, the angle of the impact, the speed and the velocity creates a certain amount of kinetic energy, which then goes into the building and causes its destruction. Why does the building collapse? Who? That nobody expected. But, well, it starts melting the beams because there was a lot of jet fuel in it Right? there was a lot of jet fuel in it causing great heat and the collapse of some of the steel whatever they were the steel barrier beams over there and based on the size and laws of nature I mean, I'm mean, i sure they could tell you exactly which laws of physics were involved brings about the collapse of the building well, a building like that collapse is going to kill a lot of people law of nature Now you're going to tell me a hundred stories of people that were miraculously saved. Yes, definitely. Hashgach of allowed this person to be saved because of this and this. He, He went down for a smoke. And he was across the street because he saw a friend. Chance occurrence. Saved his life. Miracle. What about the guys that didn't get the miracle? Was there a divine decree and will die? Or was it merely a lack of a divine decree to say, you know what, I want you to live another day and I'm going to bring it about somehow or other. And how much of it is that God gave him opportunities. There was a mishulach downstairs that says, I have to speak to you. And the guy hung up the phone and said, I'm not going to speak to you. He deserved to die because he hung up the phone? No. Hanging up the phone on the mishulach is not a death decree. But God gave you an opportunity and you chose not to take it you know what, that's all the hashgacha you deserve you're a person deserving of some level of hashgacha. the guy gives you a phone call, I'd like to meet you in the lobby because there's a sign, no solicitations I can't go up to you, you gotta come down to me and you go, you know what, in a half hour come back in a half hour and you hang up the phone at the wrong time the person dies Hashgacha, divine decree die, or merely removal of hashgacha. you know what I gave you the opportunity, you didn't take it the rest is gonna be natural The rest is going to be nature. See? See where I'm showing you? How all three of these factors come together in a mind-boggling way which we can't possibly comprehend. Bechira, Gezeira, Zardin, Hashgocha, nature. But as we see, we're just getting at the fundamentals. Some people believe that everything in nature, that fire burns this piece of paper, is only because God's willing that fire to burn the paper. Says the Chinuch, that's a das roch. That's very far-fetched. Now, fire burns paper because God originally set up the world in such a way that fire should burn paper. And that bull horns should pierce soft flesh. And that bulls should be a tongue. I mean, God wanted bulls to grow up to be a tongue. And that they should have sharp horns. And human flesh is weak put the three together you got a dead human being that's, that's natural that's nature but divine decree says no you have to die so the chinuch says it comes to nature it's, it's part of the original decree the original mechanism that God placed into nature it doesn't have to be an active decree each time but human beings do have but human beings also have bukhira. but now we're saying that human beings have to somehow interact with the world at large what is this three way intersection and interaction I don't have the answer to that but this is what we know therefore he says the Torah teaches us we shouldn't take Tzoras as chance we shouldn't take you have to think right away, it's your sin, The and you're quarantined because of your sin, and you then go to the Kohen, who is the atoner, as opposed to the doctor, because he's the healer, he's the physician of shever HaChet, he's the physician of spiritual illness, and you show him your, your nega through his advice, and his words, and by your meditation and contemplation of your sin when you're quarantined and in isolation, you then take away the root cause of the illness which was the sin, then goes away. Because God, who has always eternal providence over the person, could see when you do chuva, when you repent and he will hear you and this is the essence of what the mitzvah teaches us it's a very fundamental lesson but a very difficult one and as I said in the beginning I'm leaving you with more questions than answers by taking the simplistic questions that we began with what is hashgach? where is the hashgach? What is it? and we answer the simple ones but now that we answered the simple questions you got much more complex and detailed questions but you have to know at its root the fundamental lesson of this Parsha then of this entire Parsha is the concept of Hashgacha Pratis that Jews believe in it and as I said in the beginning this is not only a belief that Jews have to have It's not only one of the most important fundamentals, but it is the most important fundamental. In fact, it's the essence of Jewish belief in God. The essence of Jewish belief in God is belief in Hashgucha. If you don't believe in Hashgucha, you're an atheist. Not you're a believer in God who lacks the belief of Hashgucha. That's not what it is. It's not just believing in God, but I don't believe in the Torah from heaven clearly that's one of the Would fundamentals the rush. not only do you believe in God I don't believe in Torah Messina you don't believe in God you're an atheist as far as the Jews are because the Jewish concept of God is Hashgoch is the God of Hashgoch and if you deny that you're denying God therefore if you're going to have a book that denies the Exodus then the entire book is atheistic. There's no faith or belief in it. You know, I once said, interesting, a number of years back, you see, the conservative movement never put out what their creed is, what they believe in. So a number of years ago, based on a certain advertisement they put in the New York Times, they created an entire, um, whatever, an entire credo around it, and they put out, this is what we conservatives believe in. And they entitled the book, MS Velmuna so I commented then that it was like the Holy Roman Empire you know what they always say about the Holy Roman Empire it wasn't holy it wasn't Roman and it wasn't an empire I can tell you this much that book Emes Vemuna there's no Emes to it and there's no Emuna to it it's not Emes and there's no Emuna there but if you deny Hashgacha you denied God so the lesson to drive home and it's very important because nowadays that's what we're living through we're living through a period of many many questions and I answered and I ended off with a series of questions about Rosh Garchus according to the Chinooks he again I have to again say that the Chinook holds like the Ramban holds like the Rambam it was the mainstream approach by the Rishonim. later on the Mukubalim, the more Heimshire approach is not this but he says it's Roch Minadas we're going with his mainstream approach but I said we're going to end with more questions than answers but the fundamental premise behind all of this is that the parsha drives home the point of Hashgucha Protest. Hashgucha Protest. And Jews have to believe in that. And one of the first things of tshuva, see, that's why we didn't even get to the Russian horror part. Just the mere awareness. The mere awareness of what it is. It's almost like in psychology, you know, it seems to me that half the cure of psychological, you know, problems is the awareness of what the problem was. You're aware of the problem. Shail's already have fifty percent of the of, of, of the cure. If a person is able to re- understand this, that what happens is a result of Ash you have to have faith in Hashem. Liftoyach Bashem, as the Chaim begins that mitzvah by To have faith in Hashem, not just belief in God, but faith in Hashem. That's already half the cure right there. So. It's a lesson which we have to go with. We have to understand that there's Hashgochah. What Hashgochah is? We, we, maybe what we'll do is, since I put on top of this page, the Tazriya, Mitzorah, Emor and Kiseitse, we'll come back to this and do more of this about Hashgochah another time, maybe in